Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. We're recording on Thursday, May 28th, 2020. Coming to you from bookriot.com. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. And um, we're going to start out with a whole bunch of follow-up of, of, of various kinds. But before we do that, um, a little scheduling note. So we're going to be doing the regular news shows throughout the summer, weekly. Um, we will not have bonus episodes, the midweek episodes for the next couple of weeks, but we will have one uh, coming out June 24th. So you've got a few weeks to get there um, on... Well, Rebecca is going to be leading the discussion of our next It book of 2020. Why don't you tell us what it is, Rebecca? Yeah, so the Book Riot Insiders voted um, on our next sort of book club club selection, and it is The Vanishing Half, which is the new novel by Britt Bennett, author of The Mothers, which was out several years mm. ago. Um, the Vanishing Half comes out, I believe, next week. By the time you're listening to this, it will be coming out like tomorrow on Tuesday, the mm-hmm. 2nd. Um, so you'll have several weeks if you want to pick it up or, you know, grab the ebook um, to read. And then I will be discussing it with Vanessa and Sharifa, both of whom you've heard on this show before, um, for that show that releases on the 24th. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, so check that out. Go find it. The Mothers is great, too, oh, yeah. by the way. Uh, let's see. We're we're gonna do follow up. Um, some of this is just to let people know if they hadn't heard some of it. We actually can talk about a little bit. But the first one comes and uh, Nicola pinged us. Um, we did see this, but I'll give her credit for making sure she got to see us. Where that Alaska school board in uh, Matanuska Susitna mm-hmm. uh, Matsu, as they call it, borough school board has backpedaled on its division uh, decision to remove Gatsby, Invisible Man, Catch Twenty Two, the things they carried. And I know why the cage birds sing. After widespread and vocal, both 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 a range and intensity of backlash <laughs> that a small school board in Alaska was not expecting, nor could they handle. And now it looks like, nor do they really. This is how much you care about your morals. I always think about this mm-hmm. when someone backpedals on something like this. Oh, actually, didn't care that much. I mean, whatever. I think they're doing the right thing. But um, if they really cared, if it was really that destructive to the lives of children, um, <laughs> there'd be more of a spine. Is that unfair? No. Is that uncharitable? I don't yeah. think it's uncharitable at all. Um, okay. I think it indicates that they know it's not about the books. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I do wonder, there's one thing to have like people at mentioning your school board Twitter account. Mm. Like, what is the pressure that mattered? Like, where did it come from? Because usually these things, there's a, they can be a wide ring of people that have nothing really to do with your school board, that don't pay taxes, they don't go there, they don't live in Alaska, they, you know, they don't have anything to do with it. But did that pressure kind of work outside in? Like, people seeing that caused people locally to rethink it? Or like, what was the chain of events that finally collapsed um, this house of coward cards? Um, that is this particular banning. Yeah, I am really curious too, especially when a story goes as wide as this one did, and like it was all over, you know, CNN and the Washington Post. Like mm-hmm. that, that'll bust you out of whatever your 
little filter bubble might be in your particular neighborhood or your small town or your school district where a certain thing is happening and maybe it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, and then mm. all of a sudden a national newspaper or a national television station is covering it and publicly shaming you basically. Yeah. Like, this is not flattering coverage of this no. school board. Um, it's a really big mirror to have held up to yourself um, or to what decisions uh, you're potentially going along with. And I'd be really curious about. I, I wonder, too, if you could even, in that position, identify what the point of yeah. pressure was that was most effective. Or was it just a certain moment where the feedback was loud enough that it was easier to reverse the decision than to dig in and have to continue yep. with the yep. prospect of like, oh God, how much longer are we going to be on CNN? Well, and school boards are funny things in that they have a lot of power and they tend to be very local officials. Um, and, you know, maybe a decision was made kind of without thinking about it too much where someone, you can imagine a scenario in which someone on the school board has a very strong opinion mm -hmm. and everyone else is like, fine, Karen, you know, whatever, right. let, let's just get on. <laughs> yeah, but when they mean. actually had the screws pulled to them, like the path of least resistance was no longer to accede to Karen, but to say, you know what? Um, I'd like to get on with my life in the world. And if that means we have great Gatsby on our list, so be it. So, you know, it could just be moving the needle from what's less painful mm -hmm. to, to the other side. Yeah. Um, so m maybe it didn't actually take as much moving uh, as you would think. Um, Mara wrote in, in, in a couple of these in um, response to our, our recommendation show. These are the best because they make me feel terrible and great about <laughs> doing the show, but also about our listeners because there's one here that I should have thought of and one I have never heard of. So I'm okay. glad to see it. But this was about books for librarians in which we, we, we called for, you know, the, the, the lab girl, um, for librarians. Yes. We did get one recommendation for an illuminated life about Belle Costa green which we know because mm -hmm. we did an annotated episode about it. That's a biography of someone who's a private librarian. Like, it's an interesting book. I think the annotated episode is all you really need uh, there, to be honest. Um, it's a very, 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 very um, exhaustive biography, and there's a lot to know there, and I'm glad it exists for posterity's sake. But um, anyway, but Illuminative Life is a good biography, but go check out the World's Most Glamorous Librarian episode of Annotated, which is available, even though Annotated has uh, joined the ranks. Uh, uh, of the rem the remembered in podcast land. Um, so that was one. And I, I knew that book, but I didn't think of it as sort of being what that person was looking for, but she can decide for herself. Uh, the one I should have thought of uh, because he's written for us in the past is The World's Strongest Librarian yes! by Josh Hanagarn. Yes. <laughs> um, a memoir of Tourette's faith, strength, and the power of family about Josh. Josh has Tourette's. He's also a strongman, weightlifter, and a librarian, and a very interesting guy, and a very interesting read. So that one's a good, that's a good, that's closer. I don't think it's quite the same, but um, as you know, it doesn't quite exactly tick the box of Lab Girl for librarians, but it's pretty damn close. And the other one is more of um, cultural history, but it's called The Book Is, This Book Is Overdue. This is one I hadn't heard of. How Librarians and Librarians Can Save Us All by Marilyn Johnson. So it sounds like kind of like if Clive Thompson wrote mm. about librarians, this is kind of the book you would get, which I know is, um, I just rang multiple bells for a there. So <laughs> yeah, I was just like, wait, I just need a minute for all my dopamine to slow down. <laughs> yeah, all right. Wait, wait, I'm on a roller coaster <laughs> of feelings about a book recommendation. Um, so I thought those, those that feedback from um, uh, listeners, I think are, are better supplements than the ones 
we actually got here. This now we're really going to do. Oh, there's a bunch of people writing to us about their libraries reopening during pandemic. Mm. Like we talked about San Diego as the first major library system. It sounds like we were sort of wrong about that. Oh, in the Phoenix area, apparently. Um, Robin wrote in to say that they could do holds and pickups for a curbside for about three weeks now. And that was of May 19th when she wrote. So now it's nice. been getting close um, on a month. She says there's, I, she's not ready to go back to the library, but she's comfortable with this. There are no interlibrary loans. Uh, and they don't check in books for 72 hours after they return. So they give them a few days to off gas, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually not super up on my best practices for like getting inanimate objects uh, you know, to, to be a, to a place where people feel like they can touch them again. Um, long uh, and very nice an email from Allison about the conditions and consideration when it comes to curbside pickups. Mm. Um, she lives in New Hampshire. Um, we just don't know about how long the virus can live on hard surfaces. Um, her library is accepting return meals, but not all materials are quarantined for seven hours and disinfected by staff. So it sounds like there's a little bit of there's a little bit of trouble um, about deciding what and how it does. They were using plastic bags, but they were thinking of switching to paper. But then that was confusing. Um, the last time they tried curbside pickup, they were bringing the bag to the patron's car, asking them to stay in the car, and they would hand it to them. But then, you know, to hand it to someone, unless you have extremely long arms, you're getting within that six foot magic distance which some people think is really three feet. Some people say, wow, 10 meters is actually safer. We're still in that um, part of this. So it just differs in many ways. They were The New Hampshire librarians were declared non-essential by the state. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not as simple. I, I didn't think it was simple, but I was curious about mm-hmm. what the concerns around curbside pickup. There's the problem, like you could do the sort of thing where you librarian puts it in a receptacle out by the curb, walks away, then someone walks to it and picks it up. But the fact of the matter is you're still touching the same thing. We don't know. And the $64,000 question, tell me if you agree, is, is even that amount of risk sort of worth it at this point? Like, do we really need, libraries are great. I love libraries. We want them to be open. Do they need to be open now? Given what we, and at some point we're going to be okay with some risk, but have we crossed that and it sounds like librarians and patrons are kind of on the same page of, I feel comfortable with this sort of like, you put it there, like a dead drop, like in a spy movie kind of a situation, like mm. that kind of a thing. <laughs> but when I actually have to come in or come out, and then how long am I safe to touch the thing? And then what do we do with it? It's like, what do we do? Can't we just wait a couple months and see where we are? That it's, it, it is difficult to understand. Yeah, it is difficult to understand. And I think it's hard because it feels like nobody really knows about so yeah. much so many pieces of this, like your question there of, is it worth the amount of risk? I think there's a prior question to ask, which is how much risk actually is there? You know, like I happened to be reading something yesterday that was estimating that only like 5% of infections are coming from contact with surfaces that, um, that have the virus on them, and then you touch your face or whatever. Um, So I'm seeing folks do it like, you know, the restaurants here that are doing curbside pickup are asking that you wear a mask and they wear masks when they bring your food out to you because then they have to hand it to you through your car window. They're closer than six feet, but everybody is masked. Um, Some places are doing curbside where you pop your trunk and they just put the item in your trunk. So they're at least removing the, you know, person to person risk. But there is still that thing of you're you're touching stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm touching the I'm touching the bag that my takeout comes in. I'm touching the grocery bag that the bagger touched. I'm I think if you want to be 
it, it seems like the message is if you're doing any of these things, you should wash your hands after you touch whatever the item yeah. is and before you touch your face or you feed yourself or anything like that. It's not zero risk. It seems like it's relatively low risk um, if the people aren't face to face, but it's still risk. And I do, I also feel that of um, I don't think there's a right answer here. And if there is, we don't know what it is we don't have enough information in a clear and consistent fashion to say like this is the way that libraries should do it or ultimately like this is the way that bookstores should do it i was um, talking to an indie bookseller friend who was just sort of kicking around ideas for when their store might eventually reopen and it was stuff like you know we could do limited capacity by appointment only like two people in at a time in each half hour slot you can make everyone wear masks you can make them all sanitize their hands on the way in you can limit contact but like do you have to go find every book they touched while they were in the store and quarantine that book for 72 that sounds hours before untenable in the extreme that, that right and part. and like is that necessary like like right like if that's necessary it's untenable in the extreme but is it necessary you know like if if they sanitized their hands and they're wearing a mask is it necessary to like to quarantine or remove or sanitize every? Yeah, no one knows. No one it's knows. It's just so many. It's just so many shruggy men. No one knows. Um, Shanique wrote in and like a little pod, good podcast birdie. She she heard us talk and then saw that her library in Indianapolis was starting curbside pickup. So she was there ten minutes after it started. She she signed up so she could do a dry run for us. And this sounds like. The best possible scenario you can you can execute right now, and people's other mileage might vary. I think I would be comfortable with what she describes. Basically, you put your books on hold. The library calls you. They mm-hmm. have books to pick up. You show up at the back entrance at the time you're supposed to be there. You have a number. Um, you tell them the number, and a runner comes out and drops your order at this tent, mm-hmm. and then runs back in, and then you go to the tent and pick it up, and you get in your car. I don't think you can do any better than that. Um, she said it was easy. She felt good about it. She would do it again. I think I would be comfortable about that. But it's, again, the uncertainty around sort of the miasma of yeah. gross around the bag. Is yeah. if you're com- Now, should we ask librarians to be comfortable with that? I, I don't know. I think it's a, a discussion for librarians to have. At some point, people got to work. You have a job to do. People need the service. Um Uncertainty works both ways, though. It could be more dangerous than people think. It also could be way, yeah. way less dangerous, right? That's another possibility. And and one of the things that is hopefully going to come out of these sort of gradual reopenings is insight into what yeah. ongoing infection rates look like. And, you know, like, are people continuing to be infected just because they're not honoring social distancing or they're not wearing masks or they're getting too close to other infected parties? Or does somebody, like, God forbid, somebody gets an a, mm-hmm. an outbreak from library pickups. I do not want want that to happen. But like if we go through this reopening for the next couple of weeks or months, however long it lasts, you know, until there's a second spike or whatever is going to happen, who knows what's going to happen. Um, but yeah. it's all data right now of what mm-hmm. can we do, which things result in which outcomes. Um, I just Googled, because I hadn't looked at it yet, what my local library is doing. And it sounds like they're doing the exact um, thing that Shanique mentioned, where you can um, place holds and they will contact you when your hold is ready. And it's placed in a bag on a table outside. And you Mm -hmm. can go and pick up your bag with your books in it without having to have contact with anyone else. Um, A couple of the restaurants that I frequent are doing that 
basically exact same thing. Um, so it seems like this is at least a common practice or relatively common how it goes in the long run. Who knows? I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Th- that makes sense as mm-hmm. the way to do If If you're going to have it, like, that's not hard to do now again. Yeah the volume of people you can serve is way lower. Like right. my local branch, which I, I love, is very small, but you can have 40 people in there browsing and picking stuff mm-hmm. up. Runners to tents and back and forth and call numbers. Like you do wonder, like even the level people would be comfortable with, is that enough volume to like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Like why, why even do this much rich so we can serve 11 people in the more? I don't know. Yeah, it's it, that's know. a tough call. I was reading a profile this morning of Left Bank Books, which is an indie bookstore in St. Louis. And they were talking about how they've you know pivoted to doing curbside and online orders and one of the challenges is that you know when a customer is in the store it takes you know maybe two or three minutes to ring them up at the register and have that whole interaction and when they're when they are placing orders for things online or finding the books in their store and then packing things and arranging the shipping and putting everything on it can take uh, the owner was saying like up to 30 minutes to do one order, mm. like to serve yeah. one customer. And that just cuts down your volume and your potential revenue by so much in those cases too. Which is better than nothing, but how's it going to work in the long run? How long mm. is the long run? It's just so many more questions than answers. And, and the big question, I mean, there's a lot of questions, but I think for me, and, and frankly, my own family were talking about this over the weekend, is like, what would we need to know to do what? Mm. Like what... Okay, say that we have this miasma of uncertainty of grossness around a, a bag of books left in a tent that someone just dropped off, but they're now more than six feet away from you. At what point, if it's not now, would you feel comfortable doing that short of everyone's vaccinated? Because I'm assuming it's somewhere between now and everyone is vaccinated that most people, even librarians would be comfortable doing that. But mm-hmm. what would what would the data even need to be? Like, I think that's the other thing. There's no go, no go number short of 100% of people are vaccinated. But it's not going to be that for years. We're not going to keep libraries closed for years, are we? So then it's really a, a matter of degrees. And it's almost a reverse frog boiling situation where you've, you're not comfortable, you're not comfortable, you're not comfortable, and you just continue. The inertia of being uncomfortable means that any data doesn't really change how you feel about it, which is its own kind of a suffering from an abundance of caution too. So it can go the other... At some point, the the math will be flipped where it really will be like, well, if you're not going to open now, just shut down for two years until everyone's mm-hmm. vaccinated, right? Because that's that's the only thing that will give people more confidence than touching a bag someone just touched 30 seconds ago and then you wash your hands. So. Yeah. Anyway. All right. <laughs> well, let's do a sponsor and we'll do, we got we got a, quite a bit of fried green tomatoes follow-up we're going to do, but uh, let's do a sponsor first. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Okay. Um, So, largely what we asked 
our big question was, did you understand in the moment, say you watched this contemporaneous with release or subsequently, you know, on VHS? We're only, you know, if you didn't watch it on VHS, you weren't in the moment. I'm going to call that as our, our bounding principle here. Did you get, did you understand um, that Iggy and Ruth were a, a couple, a romantic couple, and a presumably a physically intimate one? Um, there can be all kinds of romantic couples, and, you know, I don't want to get into that, but presumably... That's what we're talking about here. And the people who wrote back said, and again, these are people from the South and the Midwest. I didn't get people from Boston or San Francisco or Seattle or whatever, so that can change things. But people who wrote in, I got someone from Indiana, I got someone from Georgia, I got someone from Texas. They all said, no, I thought they were just really good friends, which I get. Mm-hmm. I'm from Kansas. Like, I, I, I honestly cannot remember what my first reaction to. I don't know if we said, I don't know if I said that oh. on the show, but I don't remember my first reaction yeah. to what they were. I for sure did not know that they were a couple. Yeah, right. So I, I think that's, that's probably right. The second question was, you know, a related question was, if it had been overt, if the implicit had been made explicit, would it have been a disaster? Would it have done the box office it did? And those same people said, absolutely not. It would have been seen and consumed differently there was i don't know it wasn't it's not a sort of situation where people who would have objected to a lesbian relationship on the screen sort of understood that's what it was but it wasn't shown so like oh that's fine it's like if they would have known what they were looking at they would have been like oh hell no yeah but they didn't so it worked so that's that's the that's the double-edged sort of coding right we talked about Mm -hmm. this on the show a little bit like if you're going to code you can get it to more people but a lot of them aren't going to understand what the code is because they don't have the cipher. You know, they don't they don't have the the gate or whatever you know you want to use or some other kind of sensibility too. I want, I looked around at the time. I wondered at the time. You know, we get Harry Potter comes out and people are protesting the witchcraft, right? We get that kind of stuff going on. Were there was there backlash against fried green tomatoes from like Westboro Baptist Church? You know, in Topeka, mm. let's ten like people were. Did they even get it? Like, or did it go so far over their heads? And the utility of that is differently, like if because then then it's really you're communicating to the in group, like oh you know I'm winking and you understand what the wink is, and everyone else just thinks I have something in my eye, and so they're not going to get any of the message. But in order to get the message to you, I have to not give it to them at all. Yeah. It sounds like that was the mode that yeah, this was operating. And that's what it felt like to me. The differences between the book and the movie—that's what that really yes. felt like to me—is that the movie gives itself plausible deniability about the nature of mm-hmm. Ruth and Iggy's relationship, where it's right on the page in the book. So like if Westboro Baptist. Like, well, their physical intimacy is not on the page in the book, but like their community acknowledges them as a couple. They refer to Stump as their child. Um, You know, the parents talk about um, Iggy having a crush. um, I don't know. I mean, it could go farther, but it still doesn't. I think it toes the line, though. I think it it was progressive for 1986. Sure. And that like if either of those pieces of media were going to like get the attention of Westboro mm-hmm. Baptist it would have been the book and not the movie but I I think it's still for as progressive as it was for the time it is still not overt about the nature no. of their relationship and it's that overtness that mm-hmm. like folks who are going to protest tend to protest is the like is the overtness the affirming like affirming is the word I was looking for when we had that conversation on the podcast and it just like wouldn't come to me at the time but like neither the book nor the movie affirms the nature of their relationship on the page and Mm -hmm. says this is who they are they're a lesbian couple it's fine um it's built into 
the tone um, of both of them, more so yep. the book. But I think it needs to be overt and affirming to get the attention of the kinds of folks who are going to be upset about it. And it's subtle enough, especially in the movie, especially in 1986, that mm-hmm. like I still haven't asked my mom because I kind of don't want to know <laughs> how she read them on screen. Yeah. Um, Scarlett wrote in, um, to say, you know, we, we might be interested, well, we asked, I think, explicitly if there were queer folk out there who remember seeing it contemporaneously and like, did the double-edged sword at least work for, like, if, if uh, dummies like us um, didn't get it, did it, the people who for whom the wink was intended get it? And the answer is yes, it sounds like that. Mm-hmm. The, her community, the people she knew had a big impact there. Um, she says, of course, it could just be your bubble. Back then, it was harder to know. It just you, you're, you're, The bubble of people were the people you know. Like That was your sense of what word of mouth was. And she says, a lot of her queer friends watched the movie when younger and was looking for a queer rep. She watched it, read the book in middle school when looking for representation, and then moved on to stuff that was more uh, overt later. Um, but she also agrees that there would have been more of a shelf life if there had at least been a kiss. Like mm-hmm. I, I think we sort of conjectured um, if that were the case, we're also ta- asking about, we didn't know enough about the language uh, taxonomy available to in-group, um, gay and lesbian mm-hmm. people. And she recommended a book for those. I might check this out too. It's called Charity and Sylvia, a same-sex marriage in early America. Um, is the name of the book. It's in the, a lesbian couple in the 17, 1800s. Oh, cool. Um, straddling the century there. It says it's good on audio. Uh, very interesting there. So it feels like we were a little, we were fairly confirmed in our suspicions of how this was working. And again, one of the one of the costs, one of the many costs of not having open and acceptable representation is this sleight of hand coded, I get it, I'm saying it, but I'm not saying it. So people who understand it don't. But then there's a lot of people like if you were 11 years old and wondering about, you know, where you fall on some identity spectrum and you happen to see this on cable it was it was it enough there for you? Like that's that's what I think a lot of people worry about. It, can you get it to the people who could use it early enough with enough explicitness that they get it? And you don't have to be such a sophisticated consumer of media to be like, oh, this is about gay women. Like you would just know somehow that that's the case. Um, but that's the line. This book was treading very much. Everyone who wrote in said they thought Iggy was supposed to be um, uh, Jessica Tandy at the end. Every single person said they thought the movie was telling us that Jessica. Tandy with Iggy, which makes well, me extremely that's mad. That's validating and, I, and maddening. I, 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 it's maddening and validating, right? Like that, I was afraid <laughs> that was going to be true, and it sounds like that was true. And Michelle and I talked about it again. And I looked at the end again. I was like, again, if if that's not what they if that's not what they meant the show the movie to say, then the editing was yeah. horrendous. Yeah. Like this, the way they caught and the smiles and the glimmer of the eye and the pauses. Like if they're just having a conversation about Iggy being alive, then what are we doing here at the end? Like looking at these weird looks at each other. It doesn't make any sense. So the language of movies for which most of us are fluent, we understand. We don't have to close read that too quickly just to get the feeling of what's going on. But I think if you actually do close read it, you're like Bates is hearing something that Tandy is not saying by looking at her for that extra beat. And then the music is playing in a certain way. It's like, if that information is not being transmitted, then whatever is supposed to be being transmitted is both weird and unintelligible in, in any kind of way. So, I think that moves from a quibble to a real flaw. I think Mm -hmm. I had it as a quibble, but I think that kind of acclamation that people understood it to be that Iggy and Jessica Tandy were the same person. um, Yeah, that that turns into a major weakness and even further 
um, buttresses our, our 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 verdict that if we had to save one, we'd save the book because it's unacceptable to me to that. If you save the movie, as great as we like Mary Stuart Masterson and Tandy and Bates and Mary Louise Parker, that that you, that you would get that and not what the book has for what Iggy actually represents and being selling fruit on the side of the road, like clearly not Jessica Tandy in every single possible way. <laughs> and I still don't understand why it would be the case that you'd want to make. Jessica Tandy, Iggy. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Why would she be lying about herself? That's not Iggy at all. Like, what is going on here? Um, anyway, so I'm all rustled up about that again. So was everyone else. <laughs> but at least we can set the record straight for those of people who watched the movie and not read the book. That is not the case. That in the book, um, Jessica Tandy, or Ninny Threadgood, is not in any way, shape, or form even possibly Iggy, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Ninny gonna, Threadgood is her whole, is a whole other person. Whole other person. Now, less interesting probably than Niji and the mythology stuff is... Well, everyone's you know, less interesting interest. than Iggy. Well, that, that's a great point. It's a very high honey bar um, to, 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 to cross. All right. So let's see. How about my follow-up there? I got one more, but we're going to do that in its own spot here in a second. But let's do another sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we talked about women's fiction, and you know we were talking about in the terms of fried green tomatoes, proto women's fiction. When did women's fiction, as we currently understand it, even though now it's sort of been subsumed by the idea of commercial fiction, which is its own kind of coding, maybe weirdly, I don't know. We could get into that. Um, but Margaret wrote in to say that she wrote uh, a paper on women's fiction uh, back in the day, um, and. Really, she understands it to have begun with Bridget Jones' diary in the mid-90s, and first to be chiclet, then women's fiction, and then what we now sort of call commercial fiction. So that spurred that, okay. that rush of two, in the 2000s of your Sophie Kinsella's, your mm. Jane Green's, your Jennifer Weiner's. Your young, Divine Secrets white, of Yaya Sisterhood. Young, white, career woman in big cities dealing with a relationship and jaw drama. I, I'd never seen it formulated quite like that. But that is the white hot center of what we understand women's fiction and really commercial fiction to be at this point. I think that really resonates with my understanding. Now, it's changed since then. Um, she says she's not sure how fried green tomatoes fits into the canon, um, but it's more suited now to our current understanding of women's fiction than it would have been in the early 2000s. So it's sort of come around, right? Like, it's not about really professional women. It's not about series. It's not really job drama, though there's a relationship. But it's not a urban professional white collar woman's story of being a white of white collar women's concerns being yeah. mostly the center of the yeah. story is that is that reasonable i think so I've, I've been thinking about this and i think if it came out today it would be marketed to the book club set but because yeah. it's southern fiction and southern fiction unless it's super gothic and dark and even sometimes then and written by a man has a hard time being taken seriously yeah. Yeah. Um I mean it would be I mean it would be in it would it would be in the crawdads niche, right? I mean yeah. it's a way better book than that, but Iggy would be Manic um Manic, Manic Pixie, Pixie Ma Swamp Girl. Uh calf, Diner Girl. Um <laughs> Manic Pixie Beach. But I don't Armor. think so. But I don't think so because she's not. She's not in a way that uh, yeah. uh w w Kayla is in um Crawdads. But I think that would 
it would have a cover. It would have that kind of pastel-y cover, that, that, that 90s cover that I, I kind of really like now. It's kind of <laughs> retro and cool that I have now. would look a lot like Crawdads for whatever reason. Um, anyway, Fried Green Tomato crushes oh, Crawdads as, as a book. So I, I don't, I don't want to throw them in together in terms of quality, but in terms of marketing niche, it would be very, very similar. Yeah. This is a that. total aside, but since we're seeing the home offices and bookshelves of like everyone who's ever been on television now, since everyone is zooming in to produce their mm-hmm. TV shows, I'm having a really fun time seeing how many bookshelves I spot the Crawdads book on. And mm. it's on a lot of them in very unexpected places. Like, what well, has to be. It's regression <laughs> to the mean. <laughs> I know, but it's been like, yeah. like Bob's watching ESPN and there's some guy talking yeah. about, is there going to be a baseball season this year or not? And his whole bookshelf is like sports books behind him. And then I can spot the spine of where the Crawdads sing. And it's like, really? Even that mm-hmm. guy? There's a good piece Fried in the Green Times. That was basically celebrity gossip, uh, you know, and for all intents and purposes, but like analyzing the bookshelves of celebrities on their Zoom calls and wondering yeah. how performative or uh-huh. not they were. Like, let's 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 remind everyone and, that all bookshelves are performative, yes. whether or not they're on Zoom calls. There was just a piece this morning about how The Power Broker by Robert Caro has started popping up on everyone's bookshelves and a lot of those too, especially like the business commentary folks. Look, it's a, like a lot of things. I think we even did posts like this in, in back in the day or, you know, maybe early, like the books that are deal breakers in someone's dating profile, mm. you know, something like that. It's a lot of the same stuff you want to see on someone's bookshelf. Now, if you have Atlas Shrugged on there, it's not a great sign, but then you have to contextualize it. Is there a lot of their college reading? Because they get thrown out, you know, you read right. it, it's part mm-hmm. of the history. It's like, now, if it's there next to Crawdads, next to, you know, a bunch of like clearly leisure time fiction, yeah, maybe think differently about that. What book could you see? Let's see. I'm trying to think of uh, Rebecca' favorite celebrity. No, no one's really coming to mind here. <laughs> I'm uh, thinking. Um... I don't know. I don't know who we got. Oh, okay. Let's just default. Okay, good for all time zones. Brad Pitt zooming right. Uh-huh. And you're looking at Brad Pitt's bookshelves. What is the book A that would most delight you to see there, and B most most. Uh, I don't think you can use this as a verb, but most crestfall you. <laughs> oh, um, what would most lower your crest? <laughs> what would most lower my crest? Yeah. The proverbial crest. Yeah, the uh, proverbial crest. Um, okay. Well, if Brad Pitt had a copy of, I don't know, When Women Were Birds, that would delight me. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, or like, um, I don't know. So let me just unpack that just for a minute. I know you like women and birds, but some of it is that it, that's not a, that's not a super well-known title. Like it's right. not like the equivalent of having, well, even Tony, right? right? You'd exactly. love to well, see Tony my, there, right, but Tony the won the Nobel prize. Right, like you might exactly. just have that performatively. The, my brain yeah. immediately went to like, if Brad Pitt had, you know, like beloved and yeah. Gilead, but those are, he, he's much more likely to be aware of those. And, yeah. and given that we're using the Brad Pitt example, like he's a well-read Mm-hmm. In, like interested, curious, worldly mm-hmm. person. Yeah. Uh, so I believe that he's aware. I, I have the expectation that he's aware of Toni Morrison and probably aware of Marilyn Robinson. But when Women Were Birds is less of a big title, it's mm-hmm. a quieter kind of contemplative situation. Um I think the readership of it is probably predominantly women. So a mm. man taking interest in that would be interesting to me. Um, yeah. Or like I'm currently finally reading Braiding Sweetgrass um, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I would love to see mm. that 
on. That's that. an interesting, I mean, that book has had, an, I mean, uh, 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 speaking of annotated, it would make a great ep- episode to talk about the long history and origins and the sort of slow burning popularity of that book mm-hmm. over time. I, I guess you, what you've kind of tapped into there is a meta category that you'd like to see, especially amongst extremely wealthy handsome straight white people <laughs> men especially it's just will they read a book about someone that's not like them at all like right, are they are they interested in you know will they have hunger by roxanne gay yeah or, you know, exactly uh, something like, if, like that if their books sh- if the bookshelf is performative and i agree with you that it is um mm-hmm. then what brad pitt would be communicating to me about himself with the presence of these particular two titles is not just is willingness to read about and take on the experience of someone who's had a very different life than he has, but also like a core interest in the natural world and um, like a a kind of a groundedness. There's a really grounded quality to both Mm -hmm. of those books Mm -hmm. um, that I think conveys, or I would at least, I think it projects um, some other qualities about a person. And I would find that very appealing on anybody's like bookshelf or, or bedside table. Um, I had a, a, a friend who is now married, but when he was dating a couple of years ago, texted me um, after a date that he was delighted when he went home with a person and they were reading um, Men Explain Things to me and that he had read that <laughs> <laughs> and got to like have a conversation. And I was like, you know, that woman was probably thrilled that you were like excited to, to be talking about Rebecca Solnit with her and were not put off by the presence of that. Like, yeah, that's that, a good that... litmus test on your bedside table. <laughs> That's borderline aphrodisiac for some people. <laughs> right. to see that on the bedside. Uh, what would make me crestfallen? Um, well, so I will. I'll use a personal example, especially since you made outside of like reference. the really bad stuff, like the mind. You know, like not that stuff. You know, yeah. that's not. We're not putting that. Yeah, on the yeah, table. yeah. No, not the really bad stuff. Bob has yeah. a copy of. I hope they serve beer in hell by Tucker nope. Max. Out he read. a thousand. Burn it down. Right. He read it when he was like 19. We were in college and Bob holds on to all of his books. So like I have I get rid of things over time, but Bob holds on to everything. So I have just like had to accept in my heart of hearts that there's going to be a copy of a Tucker Max book in my home for the foreseeable future. Um, What if there was a very selective (laughs) thief that came in the night? You know, the bookshelves are full in my house, and so the mm. Tucker Max book has just had things stacked in front of it. <laughs> yeah, well, what if it was there was stuff stacked in front of it, and it was no longer there? <laughs> right, what if it just spontaneously combusted? <laughs> I don't just know, that things happen, thing. Bob. <laughs> and why were you looking for it anyway? I know, and we've had like whole conversations about this, where he's like, I know it's awful now, but I liked it when I was 19. Like the guy was, you know, all just wild, and it was a Yeah, fun, it's, it's a terrible it's a book, book for a 19-year... Like, anyone to read, but when you're 19, it's especially Yeah, uh, right. Uh, and like, obviously, Bob did not grow up to be Tucker Max. Um, right. But he was like, it's my book, and it was part of my reading history. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know, this is not the hill I'm going to die on. But if Brad Pitt had chosen in his Brad Pitt life to keep a copy of I Ugh. Hope They Serve Beer in Hell, my all my crests would fall. <laughs> yeah, there wouldn't be any crests. <laughs> they'd be they'd be unrisable. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna I'm gonna flip this over to you. Um uh, what, Meg so Ryan. what celebrity Oh Meg Ryan. It has to be Meg Ryan, right? Uh sure, sure. Why not? Why not? Um are you sure it's not Jessica Chastain? Anyway, Ooh, I'm just, I'm okay. Gonna... Either one, either one. I'm more interested in Jessica Chastain's bookshelf. Well, given my given my background, 
I'd love to see Invisible Man up there because that's A, very mm. difficult. Mm-hmm. And B, it's not as it just it's enough it's enough of a signal of something without you would necessarily use to as a flag for something if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't think like, oh, that's performably and like you have to know a lot to even pick that performatively, I guess what I'm saying, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Yes, that's yeah. the one I'd be very yeah, it's interested not like- in. Because now I now I'm looking of do are they a good person, but like could we have a conversation about right. like, do we have shared interests? Yeah. I'm not like mm-hmm. looking at it as a sign of whether or not they're gonna be like a fedora hat wearing 8chan <laughs> user. I'm like, would we have fun over a glass of wine? Right, right. Like that's yeah. the, the, and that's not like a first layer classic that everybody has on their shelves just to show that they no, read books. It's not no. on the same and, plane as just like Gatsby. I would, I mean, going back to some, I, if we saw a little James Salter on mm, there. Oh, yes. I wouldn't mind that at all. Maybe that's one, like you do a cut deeper than Ellison there mm-hmm. on the literary fiction stand. Um, I guess, I mean, if we're going crazy... I'd like to see micro histories of everyday objects. The mo- the boring or the better. Because A, I like those, and B, my level of conversation is at least as good as the history of the turnip. At least. The boring or the better is the name of like some future project for you. Yes, the boring or the better. The life of an omni curious man. It's Jessica Chastain with a book on her bookshelf about like the history of paperweights. I think that's maybe a little too flamboyant for my oh, taste because it's decoration. It's mm, too much. Oh, I see. You know? Salt and pepper yeah, shakers. Too, <laughs> yeah. You've got to be like, what did Mark Karlansky discard is too boring? That's the book I want. <laughs> the guy who wrote a whole book about salt. Salt. <laughs> yeah. Paperweights were too boring. Salt, cod, paper. He's like, what were the rejected ones? <laughs> um, anyway, I think that's what I would like to, to see. In terms of what I would hate to see... I mean, outside, for women especially, I would very much not like it if it's a bunch of books by just white people. Yeah. Just in general. Like, that's that's a terrible, which is very plausible. I mean, we know what the demographics are, and if you don't live in this world or make an effort to do it, even, you know, you can be a consumer of passive white supremacy, even if you don't really want to be, if... Even if it just if you said it out loud, they would recognize it. You can still consume it for a long time without knowing it. Um, that would be too bad. Um, I can't really think of like okay, if it's a, I'm trying to think of what even the cliche things people would be worried about, like a bunch of romances. And I'm more than fine with that. That'd be mm-hmm. great. Um, commercial fiction. I like some commercial fiction. I guess if it was also just sort of uniform in any kind of way outside, even outside of cultural reasons, like if it was all just like one thing, Robert Ludlum. You know, like, okay, you like Robert Ludlum. That's fine. It's fine to like Robert Ludlum, but I'd, I'd prefer you to like some other things as well. It doesn't have to be the history of turnips, but like any kind of diver- any kind of diversity uh, of genre, of interest, of scale, of, of medium, kind of a- a- any kind of um, sense of range of curiosity. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. anything that's the opposite, any homo- homogeneity of any kind I'd, I'd find to be a real turnoff. And then if it's like, obviously like just the things you could buy as a poster at Barnes and Noble in 1994. Like if it's just Gatsby and catch 22 mm. and things you know, you've Virginia had since Wolf. high school. Well, I like all those. Those are all fine, but that's like prepackaged performative literary sophistication stuff. Like 
which I've done enough of that. Trust me. I've been, I've been in there. I've done it. I performed it. I've consumed it. Ain't for me any longer. Yeah. So I think I wouldn't like to see that. If either. I were playing this game in real life, like on a date or something, I would want yep. ideally like to see, especially doing the work that we do, I would want to see like a book on their shelves that I had never heard of. Oh, I see. You know. Oh, oh I didn't even know there was a history of the rutabaga. <laughs> oh, it's by the same guy that wrote Turnip. It was his first one. It's out of print. I didn't yeah, even know that existed. Yeah, coming soon, it's the rhubarb. Yeah, right. It's this root. It's a, you know, it's the whole corp. It's a root vegetable <laughs> anthology. Um, really? Okay. Uh, I think we got more out of that than I was expecting. <laughs> I was just thinking, imagine if this is someone's first episode of this podcast. <laughs> Look. There's Hello all, and there's welcome. Some, someone's born every minute that hasn't seen the Flintstones. That's what they say. Uh, let's do a sponsor. I think we got to move on. I think we should. Um, I don't know. We got to talk about actual news, a news. Let's do two headlines. Well, I think there's one like that's actual news. News. Uh, well, this is the big story: Hunger Games, Songbirds, Snakes, Ballads, Buster Scruggs. I don't know what this book is. <laughs> Forgive me. The Suzanne Collins prequel. We wonder: Do people care? Rebecca Shinsky. The people care. People care. People care. Tell me why. How do we know people care? It sold more than 500,000 copies last week, even as many, if not most, of the bookstores in this country are closed in some fashion. That total includes print ebooks and audiobooks, BT dubs. 500,000 copies. And that's according to BookScan, which tracks, it notes here, about 85% of the print market. So it's probably even more than that. Yeah. That's a, um, that's a that's a solid answer to the question, do people still care? This this lives in the same space for me as the long tail will be interesting as reviews and like reader testaments. discussion. Uh, right. Like, is it 500,000? Exactly. It's the testaments question. Is it just a big first day because people were excited about a new Suzanne Collins? If the story is kind of meh, like it will not continue to surge but if people love it then mm-hmm. this is going to be a big big deal how i i would not have guessed this in a million years i'm about to read from this is app's link in the show notes mm-hmm. slash listen the opening for songbirds and snakes was slightly higher than the numbers reported for mockingjay in 2010 riddle me that back girl how the hell do we understand that bookstores well, are closed it's been a decade that was the last in a trilogy ah uh, I think it's because it's been a decade. There's been a decade for more people to read those books, the first three in the trilogy and the movies have come out. And the so the potential pool of readers for this is bigger than it would have been. So, if so even if the even if the individual readers sort of excitement quotient is lower, as I would have suspected, that there are just a rod and more people means yeah. that, okay, say in, back then it was 80 and now it's 70 or 65. Well, if you have 50% more people are going to... I guess that makes sense. Yeah, we should have Googled how many copies you know the trilogy has sold so far since it first... 100 million copies worldwide. I looked that okay. up. Okay. Did my homework. All right. Well, 100 million copies worldwide, and then she sold half a million copies last week. So that's half of a percent of yeah. anyone who's right. read one of the books. That seems reasonable. <laughs> Billion dollar movie franchise. Um, we were going to do a, a thing about the Hunger Games retrospect. You know, it's 10 years since the first one came, or the Mockingjay came out, and then you have this one. The kind of thing where we would have done, 
I think we just didn't care. Right? We just didn't care. So I was projecting yeah, our own. You know, no. in non-COVID times, I think we would have, like, it was on the plan. Yeah, and we, yeah. we would have done the research and read the new book. And, uh, like, the plan was to sort of do a whole show about the phenomenon of the Hunger Games. So I think we would have mm-hmm. done some of those stats and, like, notable milestones along the way. We would have read the new book and had some feelings about it. But we couldn't muster the cares right now, <laughs> which I'm fine Anyways, with. I'm, I'm glad to see it. I like Suzanne Collins. Um, apparently, the book is fairly good from what I've seen, just sort of, uh, you know, I haven't read too much about because I think I am going to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested before, and now, like, I just like to know what people have read has become part of the mythos or whatever, but I, I'm, I, I'm glad to see this. I, I didn't have a, I didn't care too much one way or the other, but I guess I'm glad to see people are excited for a book. That's always good in my world. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling something else about it. I can't really quote my finger on it, but like, I feel like there's an episode we could do about sort of what COVID-19 has taught us about the world of books and reading that Mm. we maybe knew or didn't know because that it sold this, does it sell more? Here's my question. Does it sell Uh, more or less if we're not in pandemic? Because I could understand that maybe it doesn't sell as well. You sure I'm getting that? I'm not saying I would bet on it, but I could see a world in which it doesn't sell as well. Yeah, like I think if you... if pressed to like create the narrative about how it would sell less, because I was sort of noodling on the same thing. Mm. You could get to like, people are all home. They're looking for things to do. Reading is one of those things. Like print unit sales are up. And yeah. we're he- we're hearing stories about yeah. like, some bookstores that have sales up, even though all they can do is curbside and ship to home. So mm-hmm. lots of people reading lots of books right now dystopian stories are having kind of a moment in pandemic there seem to be people who want to there there's a like chunk of readers that the thing that the way that they're coping is reading other sorts of difficult dystopian or even you know well we've seen this before dystopian people picking up 1984 people picking up the handmaid's tale Tale. right we saw this this is a phenomenon we have talked about before yeah yeah, like sort of a mood congruent reading uh if Mm -hmm. you will and so Hunger Games is there. And then there's also the nostalgia factor, yeah. I think. Plus, it's just a beloved franchise. And Suzanne Collins has not put her foot in it the way that J.K. Rowling it's has great, over time. I hadn't. That's a great <laughs> point. Say, Tell me one thing Suzanne Collins has ever said. And I'd be like, uh, right. which is not the worst way to be a steward it's of your own not. IP. And chilling out, not getting in trouble on Twitter is a great way to be a beloved figure yeah. in any form of media and stay that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think she hasn't like eroded the trust of her fans in the same way that maybe JK Rowling has. We also haven't had a bunch of other Hunger Games follow-up attempts. Like there's not the Hunger Games equivalent of Pottermore where we, mm. there are little dribs and drabs of mm. story. So if you wanted more of these characters like or more of this world, this was the way to get it. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really, really good point that we haven't seen the Cursed Childs of the World and these other Newt's Commander Mm -hmm. things. And, well, Dumbledore was gay, but not really. And it was coded. And Suzanne Collins like, I wrote some books. Here's another one. It's about the villain, I guess. Um, Go forth and and purchase. Well, I've been sort of waiting to get to really... I really want to see May full numbers for book sales because Mm -hmm. we've seen some numbers that April was up, then early May was down and then up. And... I think once we get June's numbers in, that will have been three months, you know, almost three months since mid-March when this really hit the fan. And maybe we'll do a little bit of like 
what if anything has COVID nineteen taught us about the state of books and reading? Because I think it has. Mm-hmm. There's some things that are idiosyncratic and you know content, historical contingents, but I think in a lot of ways it's been revelatory of some things that you and I maybe have suspected, but also some things we haven't suspected. Mm-hmm. Um, so may, let's let's wait. We'll come back uh, in July once we get those numbers from the AAP, American Association of Publishers, and see what people are saying. Um, but I don't know if we talked about the the relative. Um, what we thought the relative strategic uh, canniness of not moving this book off its May 19th Street date. You can mm. see it. I mean, I wonder how vociferous the discussion it must have been. You would have not been doing your job not to at least very, very seriously considering consider moving this date. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it paid off in spades that they, they, they yeah. didn't. Uh, I would really love to know how many of those 500,000 copies were pre-orders um, of, you know, folks that had plunked their money down on the day it and was why does, why does that matter? Why does that matter? I'm curious too, but why, why are you particularly curious about that? Well, if you, one of the reasons to move a pub date is that you're worried that the oh. book will miss attention on the pub date that it needs because of something else that's going on in the world, right? So like yeah. publishers move dates or don't publish books this year where we were first hearing about like publishers not wanting to publish books around the election um, like through the fall and mm. in election season because that's where you know presumably that's going to take up so much air that books mm. just won't get the attention that publishers want them to get so I think that if they had had like low pre-order numbers and they were relying on pub date press or excitement right around the drop date that could have been mm. a cause for concern. Like I'm guessing, but that could have been a cause for concern that would have led to like, maybe we should delay this until we can get a lot of attention around it. But if there were a lot of pre-orders, because the book was announced quite a while ago, so right. there have been months and months for people to pre-order this book and the publisher to have confidence of like, it's going to do fine on release day and then it'll hit mm. bestseller lists and then there will be press around it. it it's going to be okay. Um, yeah, you... that idea that you have some data about how the book is going to perform, you could probably compare it to other pre-orders for books that mm-hmm. have some sort of pre-order life where, yeah. frankly, most books don't. Or it's very, right. it's, it'd be right. such a very small data books, set that you wouldn't yeah. be like, these 17 pre-orders don't tell us anything about anything. But if you have, who knows, like 30%, you know, some bestsellers and these kind of, I can imagine there's a lot. If any book is going to have an extremely high pre-order number, it's going to be this one or the Testaments or something mm-hmm. else like that. They're like, you know what? There's just nothing to be nervous. This looks like what we kind of would expect. Maybe it's down a little bit, but then you introduce uncertainty on the delaying side and maybe something else happens or people yeah, still are getting their like, employment checks and blah, 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 blah. Well, and presumably there was no issue with the printer and actually like the book's production to be available. Yes, on yes, time. yes, 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 yes. Um, my last one, I saved this for, for the last, it also came in the very last, but Carol writes in to say, uh, Rebecca, REI has an affiliate program and she sent us the link. I'll be forwarding that to you directly so you can bend your life as a hammock influencer. Hashtag SpawnCon. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready for my life as a hammock influencer. Uh, your biography I'm... can be played as it sways. Um, the Rebecca Shinsky you know, story. I'm coming out of this pandemic with a list of books about nature that I read while lying in a hammock. So you can look forward to my jump back to 2008 and my micro blog about that, I guess. Yeah. yeah um, I'll, if you would blurb my book about radishes, I would very much appreciate the cross, pr- cross promo. I'll uh, just say it's rad. It's rad. <laughs> Jeff really gets to the root of the interesting things about this topic. All right, we're going to end it there. Podcast at bookriot.com if you've got email you want to send us. And look, we'll even talk about your email. Like, we'll make a whole show out of follow-up and bury the biggest publishing news of the year at the end of it. 
I want to know who is the celebrity that you listeners would play this imaginary game with and what's the book you want to see and what would fall your crests. Yeah. Or, 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 or raise them to the sky. Right. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. The relative elevation of your crest relative <laughs> to celebrity bookshelf arrangement is, is what we're looking for. Podcast R- at bookriot.com. Yeah, podcast. Some people say, you don't, what's your email address? And I tell them, we say at the end of the show every time, it is indeed podcast at bookriot.com. Apparently some people found it who's got lots of good email. Thank you everyone uh, for writing in and um, indulging our nonsense. Uh, we appreciate it greatly. Rebecca, I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.